Hello, and welcome to Green Signals, your railway podcast, episode eight, with me, Nigel Harris, in a very wet, rainy Lincolnshire today, and... And me, Richard Bowker, in a very wet and rainy Derbyshire. But we're cheerful if the weather isn't. Certainly are. So, once again, Richard, Steph and me were humbled, humbled, um, by some tremendous comments um, from last week's show featuring Lord Peter Hendy, as well as a review of the Secretary of State for Transport, Mark Harper's appearance at the Transport Select Committee a couple of weeks after Richard and I did it. Um, spoiler, we were not impressed by Mr Harper, and we said so, and you seem to agree. Zach Ellsbury came in with another rage-inducing Green Signals podcast. It was a calm, clear, and evidence-based evisceration. That's the word of the podcast, Richard, this week. Evisceration. Of whatever nonsense Harper et al. try to gaslight the public and TSC with. Julie Dilcock, who's been very flattering about his before, said, another fantastic episode of the Must Listen to Rail podcast. Green Signals, like that. As a Stockton-born rail enthusiast from a family of rail enthusiasts, it was great to hear Lord Hendy talk so passionately about Railway 200 and the opportunity to celebrate the vital part that railways have played and continue to play in our society. Hear, hear, Julie. Ipcrest1066 said, after the depressing but totally necessary discussion regarding HS2, it's exciting and uplifting to hear the plans for Railway 200. Yes, we think so too. Couldn't agree more. And Peter was, as always, inspirational in his approach. I'm pleased to tell you we've also started to receive questions um, for our Christmas special, which we hope will be available on 20th of December. Please do keep sending us your questions. They can be on anything, as long as there's something we can talk about on this programme. Um, and we'll do our very best to answer as many as we can. You can email us at info at greensignals.org or via the contact form on our website or via Twitter even, though email is better so we don't miss any. Looking forward to that one, Richard? Certainly am. Some, the, the harder the better. Yes, indeed. We'll, uh, we'll have some fun with that. Anyway, on this week's show... Um, we're ringing the changes a bit this week. There's been so much of interest happening in the last week. We thought we'd try and cover a lot of different things rather than one big subject, channeling our inner Top Gear, perhaps. Maybe a dash of Blue Peter thrown in. A um, bit of a magazine approach. We also have a couple of special guests joining us on the show, and we'll tell you who they are in a moment. So don't go anywhere. So what have we got coming up? We're going to talk about luggage on trains. Um, yes, you heard that correctly. It's a personal bugbear of mine, although I suspect we may have slightly different views, Richard. I suspect we will. Indeed, indeed, as it always should be on this show. Everything I say, Richard, you contradict it. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly right. unscripted pickup there. A little campaign we have underway, which we hope will become a big campaign, um, from Richard, actually. It's normally a journalist thing, but Richard's the campaigner this time. Um, and he's called it Full and Standing, and we want your help on this one. Uh, more about that in a minute. And we look at the National Skills Academy for Rail annual survey results for 2023, the results of which reinforce what Lord Hendy was saying last week regarding the crisis of skills in the industry. We'll hear from Neil Robertson, Chief Executive of NSAR, who's always very thoughtful to listen to. But to kick things off, there's some serious stuff we need to tackle first. Richard? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that lighter stuff, Nigel. But first, we're facing uh, yet more strikes on the railways. So this is the serious point. Uh, and they do do tremendous harm to sort of public confidence. The train drivers union Aslefs announced strikes on various train companies on the 2nd, the 3rd, the 5th, the 6th, the 7th, the 8th of December. There's an overtime ban between the 1st and the 9th. Um, they're not the only union dis in dispute, obviously. The RMT has been fighting for some time now um, uh, with the train companies and the government. And let's be honest, it, you know, it's the government sort of pulling the strings here. Although it, it looks as if that one may be a bit closer to a resolution. And we will talk about that. But it is all a little bit of a mess, and it does seem to have been going on an interminable amount of time. Um, but to try and work out what on earth is going on with this, 
uh, we're absolutely delighted to welcome Graham Eccles, someone who's very plain speaking, um, immensely experienced when it comes to the railway. Uh, despite being retired for a few years now and happily making wine in France for a good chunk of the year, and Nigel tells me he's drunk a few bottles of it and it's very good, um, Graham is still very much plugged into what goes on with the railway and can regularly be seen contributing some expert and pithy comment on, on, on Twitter. Um, Graham joined British Rail in 1962. He's had a, a, a list of roles so senior and varied, it's, it's, it's almost exhausting to read it, but here's some of them. Uh, first big job, area manager, London Bridge, Charing Cross, Cannon Street, divisional operations manager, regional operations manager, director of operations and safety for Network Southeast, Europe's largest commuter railway, ran an MBO for a talk at privatization, lost it and got the sack after 34 years. Mind you, it was Connex, so that probably wasn't a, a, a bad outcome, Graham. Um, joined Stagecoach, became a a board director, chairman of Stagecoach Rail, co-chair of the Virgin Rail Group, as all the best people do. Retired for the first time in 2006, has made plenty of comebacks since then, including in healthcare and network rail. My goodness me, I mean, 44 years full-time, 11 years part-time, Mr. Railway, Graham Eccles, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Richard, but I am knackered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've, you've earned every right to be great. <laughs> Look, for those not familiar with the disputes that the railway seem to have been facing now for what feels like absolutely ages, can you just sort of try and summarise what the RMT and ASLEF are trying to secure and, and really what ASLEF is doing that's distinct from what the RMT are doing? Yeah, sure. But I'm not going to start where you want me to do. I'm going to start somewhere else. Um, <laughs> no, change, no change there then. Right. OK. I'm going to start really by, by just reminding everybody that um, a big change in industrial relations in 1996, when the railways were privatised, that historically um, the bargaining machinery between BRB and the unions um, spread the breadth of the of the ch management chain from area level right up to board level um, and with privatization that ended and really um, the companies became the train operating companies became the employers uh, network rail and the freight companies but for the first time ever industrial relations would devolve to depot level and tr train operating company level and for the most part it worked well um, there was a huge incentive uh, to settle uh, disputes rather than have them protract along. With train operating companies, they were taking revenue risk uh, and they were taking reputational risk and they were also taking industrial relations risk. So every time there was a strike, you lost money. It was in your interest not to fall out with your, your yeah. staff. And that worked well for 17 years until COVID. And as we all know, on the first day of lockdown, um, the train operating companies went bankrupt. They became insolvent and they were bailed out by the government for a number of years. Um, some people in the industry did get pay rises because some local companies and their trade union reps had done two, three, four year deals. And so those deals petered out. They matured and petered out during COVID. Right. But a lot, a lot of staff didn't get a pay rise for two, three, and now four years. So there's been a lot of catch up to do. But what, in my view, where it all went wrong is instead of going and relying on the tried and trusted machinery of consultation and negotiation, as it's called, for some obscure reason, the government and the train operators through Railway Development Group, RDG, decided that they were going to try to do a national debate. Uh, they were going to try to do a national solution to the disputes that were running. And they decided to introduce productivity into the pay rises. Now, the, the theories on this are, are pretty straightforward. The government have lost a shed load of money with railways since COVID. Um, the subsidy has gone up as the revenue has gone down. It's cost the same to run the railways as it did before. But, the, but whilst ridership may be doing really well, the money certainly isn't doing well. It's coming back slowly, but it's nothing like it was. So everybody else in the country, the taxpayers, including the railway staff themselves who are taxpayers, but they're all shelling out more money for the railway. And government's attitude is, well, the staff need a pay rise. Yeah, we agree with that. They should have one. But we want to tie in productivity improvements with that. 
And of course, the the trade union saying, no, no, we, we you owe us two, three years pay rise. We want that. Give us that. And then we'll start to talk about productivity. Mm. And you've hit that buffer stop at that point. Whereas in the old days, there was a huge incentive to sort things out. Now, really, with the Treasury picking up the bill, uh, this government has decided that they're not going to settle. They are going to hold the unions to account and they're going to get their pay rise, but they're going to pay for it themselves. And that basically is the history of the dispute. But when it comes to the overtime working bans and yeah, things yeah. like that, that's a completely different story. Uh, and, and it's another aspect that I think is that we should develop this today as to why the railway's in the state it's in. Just and before we do that, then, Graham. Sorry, sorry, Nigel, very quickly. Is there a difference then between what the RMT are asking for and what ASLEF are asking for? Is it just fundamentally the same thing? That no, the principles are the same. One right. side wants to, the, the staff to pay for their pay rise and the other side don't. It's as simple right. as that. Okay. I mean, does the government have a point, Graham? Is it not unreasonable to want to link increases in pay to improvements in terms of efficiencies and working practice? As a principle, is, is that not unreasonable? No, of course it's not unreasonable. Absolutely not, Nigel. But you have to, you have to decide before you get into a dispute that's become as bitter as this one. And it becoming bitter was entirely foreseeable here. Is it worth it? Is the productivity you're going to get worth the dispute you're having because it's not really about what the dispute has cost and people will say well it would have been cheaper for them to settle that's not really the issue here the issue is forming a new base for which to grow the future railway yeah yeah and that and that is i mean that is the real challenge isn't it but we've got to get through we've got to get through this in what seemingly is an intractable dispute at the moment yeah I think the other great mistake that I think was made was trying to negotiate with ASLEF and the RMT at a national level when the machinery was at a company level. And I, I, I mean, I, I've been out of the game a few years now, but I would find it difficult to foresee uh, a situation where all 20-odd talks wanted exactly the same condition changes as everybody else. Um, and to try to, to work that one out at the national level is far too complicated. They should have tried to sort it out at the company level. It would have been far easier to do that way. But for some obscure reason, which I'm not privy to, and I, I guess I never will be, they decided to negotiate at the national level. That, to some extent, plays into ASLEF and the RMT's hands, because and they'd be very happy to go back to the days of national bargaining. Though if we look at the recent announcement that it does look like there's a deal at a macro level with the RMT, yeah. part of that appears to be a return to local stroke regional uh, detailed negotiations, um, which does seem to make sense, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. In my view, it makes sense, Richard. Yeah, I think common sense has shown its way through. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it, it, when you look at the sort of the history of the railways, and you look at the last 20 years, you talked about the, you know, we've had this sort of harmony for a period. Um, it, it's also the case that RMT and ASLEF tend to have, there's different impacts, aren't there? I mean, the consequences are different. And if you look at sort of the traditional industrial relations landscapes, um, doing a deal with the two usually takes a different form. Is that, is that, is that fair? Is that something that we're likely to see again? It's very fair, yes. RMT represented general grades, principally network rail, uh, and in, within train operating companies, station staff and guards, as left are train drivers. Um, one can argue that one is a craft union, the, the other isn't. I, I don't personally subscribe to that. But I think what does happen here is that ASLEF um, is a much more focused organisation. It's the, the, the percentage of members of drivers to ASLEF is higher than RMT staff to uh, others. Um, and it is a, a more difficult union to, to deal with uh, for several reasons. One is the staff um, have a great deal of training behind them and detailed knowledge and they occupy very responsible jobs whereas the RMT is quite diverse 
where it's, as it takes two years to train a train driver and put them on into a cab and to drive a train, uh, you, can, you can produce a guard in six to eight weeks. So there's, there's a difference. It's, it's difficult to fall into the trap of saying a different caliber of staff. That's nothing to do with it at all. It's just the level and the degree of training that makes one union slightly different to deal with, with the other. Graham, of course, can you th- sorry, natural, yeah. I was going to say, sorry, Tim, can you... I do rub it on, so just... No, no, it's all right. (laughs) Can you throw some light on on an area which I'm sure confuses lots of people, and it it sort of confused me over the period? On the one hand, Asla has got very clear policy. They say that a lot of these problems are because the train operators do not employ sufficient drivers. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I've heard it said that Aslef quite likes it because that means its members get lots of rest day working and overtime, yeah. and that the, the train operators like it because they've got lower costs with having to occu- having to employ fewer drivers. Yeah, um, and that this is a bit of an unholy alliance, really, and it all works really well right until the moment it doesn't when there's a fallout. So you've got this contradictory view where. The union likes its members having overtime, but doesn't say that officially because its official policy is it wants them to have a full establishment, I understand mm. is the word, a drive. And I remember yeah. Chris Green telling me that after the Pendolinos came along, Virgin had a full establishment of yeah, drivers and no rest day working at all. So can you just mm. talk a bit? Of, is that right, yeah. that there's, there's been this unholy alliance? Uh, it's, yes, I mean, but it's worse than that, Nigel. It's worse than that. Back in BR days... Uh, the rails were always, the railways were cost driven as a as a railway manager i had to make my 3% per annum savings from the costs i was responsible for and when i'd done that i could do all sorts of sexy other things that i'd like to do i have a scheme here for growing revenue or plant some flowers whatever you know whatever i wanted to do with my railway as long as i made my 3% savings and the railways were cost driven with with privatization that all changed and the railways became revenue and profit driven okay. however back in br days that cost driving tended to create a situation where not just for drivers but for all grades it was based on using overtime to boost salaries. Now, the the railways didn't pay well before privatisation. Post privatisation, oh, right. everybody's made a lot of money. Yeah. You know, managers as well as staff. But before then, um, you didn't get a great deal of money if you worked for the railways. In my view, you got a whole lot of job satisfaction, but the money wasn't good. So everybody tried to get a bit of overtime if they could. And it worked for everybody. It worked for the staff themselves, because if they wanted to do, they could work their rest days and work a Sunday and and they'll increase their earnings. And it worked for management as well, because it kept the cost, kept the cost down. It's always cheaper to pay people to work overtime than it is to employ them and pay their insurance and their pensions and everything else. So it worked for everyone. But. So what's wrong with that, you may ask? Well, it's, it's great as long as everybody's getting along famously. But the minute it comes to the annual pay awards or some sort of uh, dispute between management and its trade unions, then all of a sudden the trade unions have the upper hand because by stopping overtime working, they can affect the train service. Stop the job. Yep. And people like me used to get very frustrated about that. And when privatisation came along and instead of running then just a, a division of British Rail, I was running a train operating company, the stagecoach, then I decided that I didn't want to play that game with the trade unions anymore. Um, my job was to bring in revenue and make profits for stagecoach and its shareholders. And to do that, I needed to run a good, boring train service every day. I didn't want any disputes because disputes cost you a fortune. So we set out to do two things. One, to establish good industrial relations with our people. But secondly, to drive down overtime working in the organization so that we weren't relying on the staff's goodwill to run a railway. And that's what we did. We calculated proper establishments and we recruited to establishment and we kept the establishment where it was. Um, and at Virgin Richard, we did exactly the same. And we ran the railway on virtually no rest day working. 
And uh, everybody was happy. I was happy because the profits were rolling in. The staff were happy because they'd got a better wage. Their entire salary was now pensionable in, rather than just, just for the old five days a week was pensionable. The trade unions were happy because they had their membership fees were rolling in because we were employing more train drivers and more staff. So everyone was happy. And the incentive were there was for everybody to keep going. And, and that's what happened until COVID when the money ran out. So, so, so overtime works well until it doesn't. Yeah. One, one sort of um, owning group chief, who I'll, I shan't name, described it in very colourful terms to me as it was giving the unions a loaded gun which was pointed at your head the whole time. Yeah, if you were daft enough to do it. and But don't, don't get carried away with the idea that here that all 25 train operating companies did the same thing. You know, in those days, you know, being on, on the ATOC, ATOC board was like watching a shepherd with sheep. Some of the train companies decided they were going to fill establishments. Others decided they weren't going to change drivers at all. Some of the profit some of the train operating companies that didn't really make very much money just didn't have the cash to change conditions of service and then ever since 1996 they've had a history of poor industrialations in fact one of my many comebacks was to london midland region to try to sort out the drivers there for go ahead um and when you looked at it it the the you know the the, you, you'd learn Midland and given control to Aslef, not the management, by letting uh, by letting the staff you know, decide who was going to work where. So you had more comebacks than Frank Sinatra, Graham. Um, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my wife likes it. It gets me out of the house. Yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. I, I was in a vineyard now, as we all know. <laughs> so look, is I mean, is there a is there a clear, simple solution to this? Is it just is it a case of getting the getting the negotiation back to the operators rather than dealing with it nationally and if that's the case why don't they just let them get on with it well it's because it's not that simple nigel whether we like it or not there is a financial hole in the railways and that's got to be filled um we all know we can i would feel confident that if i made yet another comeback that i could fill that hole um with revenue revenues but it's going to take some years you can't actually build a revenue-based railway if you're running a crap train service as we are now. The, the cancellations, the, the repetitive strikes, the poor quality of service delivery is not conducive to growing passenger volumes. Um, and without that, you don't get the fares. And nor is it conducive when you've got the revenues going to the Treasury and the costs from the DFT, that separation of costs and revenues, mm-hmm. as we've talked about many times in this programme, Richard's talked about it, is is lethal to uh, growing, and they do not seem interested in growing revenue. It, it's, it's, it is. You're quite right as far as a railwoman's perspective. But if I was sitting in the treasury, I would quite like the arrangement we have now because I can control the costs. So hmm. what one of the great things we can do on this podcast, we, we can play what if. Yeah. Right? With, with absolutely no comeback whatsoever. Yeah. So you're now... Uh, Director of Human Resources for Great British Railways. We've created it. We now have a guiding mind. Um, and I'm sure we could have a whole lengthy conversation about all of that. But let's just pretend for a minute. So you're Director of Human Resources tomorrow morning. Okay? What do you do with this industrial relations issue? Because I think, I think you've just said you kind of have to buy the piece to begin with because without, without a boring, reliable railway, we don't turn it around? Or is that putting words in your mouth as the no, director of HR? I, 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 that more or less sums up where I would be, Richard. I think where I'd start off is I'd want to get to the bottom of what these productivity savings are right. that RGD talk mm-hmm. about. If, if they are indeed um, game changers and they will show the way to a, a better railway, then... Perhaps there is the basis for an industrial dispute there that should be had. And if these savings are so good, if the railway board, if the railway board, God, that's, that's me going back in history, isn't it? <laughs> if the train operating company, yes, if the train operators can't actually um, sort this out with the, their trade unions, then they need to think about are they going to implement it? But you only go down that route, Richard, if you're absolutely convinced that the changes you want to make are the right things to do. Now, if if you conduct that cost-benefit study and you find that they are not, then you separate out 
the pay award from any future productivity you want to do. You settle the pay awards on, the, on an annual basis, then you go away, you work out what the hell it is you want to do about productivity, and you come back and make proposals yeah. for that. You, you have to decide whether the present dispute is worth fighting or not from a management perspective. There's a view. And yeah. uh, I, I did like your expression just then, Richard, when you said you have to buy the piece. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Then, then look at that. That's you, always buy, you always buy the piece, Nigel. Always. Yeah. Well, maybe they should put you in charge, Graham. Um, <laughs> no. Look, but... <laughs> I'm too old. Too old. Rich, Richard's told you told us it's always an interesting exercise when you're in charge. So I'd like to see about that. Um, but look, thanks, Graham. I hope you'll be happy to come back on the show in the future and talk about some other stuff because there's yeah. plenty of things going on. Um, I, I was nearly just going to say, which I'm sure you'd have a view on, but Richard said earlier, Graham's always got a view. Um, <laughs> but it's and, always um, a view worth listening to. Let's be honest. Yeah. Indeed. So. Um, you know, more wonderful stories and wise words to hear. I've, I've also said that we should maybe ask the guests to come along and at the end of the interview give us an anecdote of something that's funny and went spectacularly wrong. So maybe we'll do a bit of that in future okay. and, I, and ask people like you for some anecdotes. I'm sure you've got some good ones. But for now, Graham, thanks ever so much for your time. It really is appreciated. There's some real words of wisdom there. And good to see you and Richard back together as well. I agree. And it's <laughs> good to see you too as well. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, Graham. Bye, bye. bye for now. Wow, another fantastically expert witness there. And um, I think it's fair to say that, uh, I'm sure you'll let us know, but uh, Graham gave us one of the best explanations of why we are where we are that I've heard in recent times, because it is very complex. But when you really, really know your stuff like Graham does, then it's fairly straightforward to just come out with it and explain it, which is what he did. So let us know what uh, what you all think. Now, um, as we're doing a magazine program for something completely different, as um, they used to say, um, there have been periods in the railway's history when it's carried very serious numbers. According to ORR, the record year was 1920, when two billion passenger journeys were recorded. And bear in mind, pre-COVID, we got to about 1.8 billion. It was still somewhere short of that. Yet, neither formal railway history nor anecdotal memory, as far as I can see, if you know different, tell me, seem to record excessive luggage ever being an issue. This was probably for two reasons. One, wheeled luggage didn't exist, and so passengers were physically limited by the weight they could carry. So traditional suitcases were modestly sized. Also, trains generally had vans of one kind or another, so luggage that would not fit in those lovely overhead netted racks which were made of brass in the glory years could be stored in the guards van where there was plenty of room nowadays suitcases have ballooned in size and those little wheels have made massive cases manageable by anyone it's a major problem too <clears throat> excuse me because the space available to store bags on trains seems to have reduced in inverse proportion to the volume of luggage needing to be carried a modest suitcase of the kind you can take in an airline cabin as hand luggage will fit between train seat backs, where you have train seat backs, because um, they're reducing too in favour of airline seating, which makes this problem worse again. And on Pendolinos, for example, the overhead racks are restricted in size, as Richard discussed in a previous episode. So that makes it worse again on the West Coast. So what usually happens is that bags end up being stored in wheelchair spaces or the very limited cycle storage spaces, which also causes problems of their own. Full trains can be a nightmare for the staff. The problems exacerbated in recent years with the government insisting on cramming in as many seats as possible and likewise the, um, the private sector. Commercial considerations are always put first. When Virgin's Pendolinos were built, Richard, you successfully pushed to have passengers carried in the leading vehicles of 125 mile an hour trains. Um, and maybe you can tell us a bit about that in a moment. But that was, again, space which might otherwise, in a previous generation of rolling stock, have been vans. Um, sub subsequent trains by Hitachi followed suit. No van storage is provided. So whilst we have understandably and successfully pushed ticket sales, it's always rankle with me that we hear that passengers first mantra endlessly trotted out by both government and industry. But with regard to luggage, it's lip service. Lumo on the East Coast, this open access operator 
um, which had to have 400 seats in its train, has imposed luggage restrictions for a while, for a while now. They even have a page dedicated to this on the website. Customers can bring on board a maximum of one small bag or hold all and one medium-sized suitcase. Then, they say, luggage that exceeds the limits they establish is carried at their discretion. And you may even be reduced travel. A charge will be levied for conveying additional items of luggage or for excessively large or bulky items. Um, this will, won't exceed half a full adult fare for the entire journey, but wow, you know, that's, that's some cost. Lumo also refuses travel with some bulky items or sports equipment, does not accept non-folding bikes, but they do have a Lumo luggage courier service to transport bags independently to your destination. And now, LNER is following suit. The MSM mainstream media reported last week that LNER is advising passengers they may only take one large suitcase, and they specify the sizes, and two bags on board its trains. So this problem is getting worse and will not go away. But Railway and DFT are making, as I see, no substantive efforts to solve it. All that seems to matter is jamming in as many seats as possible. Now, LNER has also announced it's buying some tra 10 trains from CAF to replace the 225, so that's another load of vans going to disappear. Now, passengers would never dream of turning up to fly with numerous bags, but they do expect to do it on trains. Lumo has, I hear tell, started turning passengers away on the platform, which is awful. I heard tell of a Lumo train manager struggling with a tricky situation when a passenger turned up to travel with a full drum kit as walk-on luggage. Always drummers, Richard, isn't it? Always. Uh, the only answer, it seems to me, is to lose seats in favour of bag space. And obviously no one wants to do that either. But it does leave passengers and on-board staff really struggling with some very fraught situations. Um, is there an innovation to be had in seat design, which could be easily folded? Um, or removed at peak times to create storage. It could help with family travel as well. Or is it just time to bite the bullet and bring back the luggage van? What do you think, Richard? <laughs> I, I, you raised some really interesting points in that. Um, and it does cause you know, enormous issues. Um, just a few, few comments, really, um, that, that I suddenly thought about listening to that. Um, you know, I can't, I can't remember when I was at Virgin Rail Group, for instance, and we still had uh, Mark III sets, uh, you know, the carriages with a Vans. locomotive at one end and then a what, what was called a driving van trailer. They were push-pull trains, remember? DVTs, that? yeah. The DVT, um, which I thought was a, con you know, a blood condition. But anyway, no, it's actually, it's, uh, it, it's the, it was a place where the driver sat, and that had a luggage van. But I don't recall them ever being particularly used for, for luggage is first thing. Maybe that is because of a passenger volume issue, which obviously has grown massively since. Um, I believe it's actually been a, a condition, it's been a national rail condition of travel since 2012, something like All that, right. um, that uh, only three items of luggage uh, are allowed on um, trains. Now, obviously, tra different train operators can exercise discretion and let you take more if you want to, but I believe they have the right to enforce that. It's I just that no that. one... Well, it's one of those kind of little-known things, isn't it? And, and somebody listening will, will no doubt correct me if that's wrong, but I believe it's been since 2012. That's been a national condition of travel. So the, so the train operators can enforce it if they want. Um, I personally don't think it's unreasonable to restrict no, luggage. Neither. I mean, drum kits. I mean, that's <laughs> just mad, isn't it? Um, uh, uh, you know, a train is not a personal removal service um, to allow you to get your worldly belongings from one part of the country um, to another. So I don't think it's unreasonable to put some um, you know, some limitations on it. And maybe the national rail conditions of travel are, are the thing to do. But I don't think it's going to get any easier. And I think the problem um, is not going to get resolved easily. London Travel Watch is one of the, I suppose, one of the consumer groups, if I can call them that, pointed out when this story broke that um, train travel has to be accessible by everybody. And you made the point in there about uh, luggage often filling up space for wheelchairs yep. or people with mobility impairment. That's not right. You know, the, the trains should be accessible for everybody. And when you've got designated places and they're full of bags, 
the worst is the, the, the sorry the best that's going to happen is you're going to have a, a very difficult situation on the train so that that's not right um i think the real issue is the change in the the travel patterns okay i'm not convinced nigel that sticking passengers in the leading vehicle for instance which is, is something that we did do on virgin you're quite right as actually is actually really the issue i, I think the, the big numbers of people traveling are the issue i think if we hadn't had passengers in the leading vehicle would have just had a worse overcrowding problem earlier what is now happening is that leisure travel is booming yeah so lner i think i saw this on there when they were talking about this piece They've got like 30% more passengers traveling on a Sunday and they're leisure passengers. Guess with what? bags. And uh, with bags. So um, the mix has changed. We keep saying this, the mix has changed. And so what we could kind of get away with five years ago, we can't get away with now. Well, you and could put bags on seats, couldn't you? But once the trains have all got sick, people got bums in seats. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've even heard of trains so overcrowded that the bags have been stacked in the toilets. I mean that. I, I mean that's crazy. And I, we got a tweet over the weekend, someone saying that they'd been sat in the toilet because it was the only seat available with a bag. You know, so it, I mean, here's the thing: we are seeing passenger numbers return to the railway post-COVID. That's fantastic, right? Um, but they're a different kind of mix than what we had before, and they're carrying more luggage. So the problem is getting exacerbated. There's no easy answer to this. It really isn't. I think some kind of restriction is reasonable because. You know, it's like, you know, you can't carry absolutely everything. But maybe, you know, folks can come up with some potential ideas for this. I'm not sure that the luggage van's going to work unless, you know, that is a very big um, change in use of one of the vehicles on, on a train. Um, we might need more vehicles. We might need more trains. We might need to accept um, that the total number of seats per train may have to be a bit different i don't know it, it's not easy but uh the railway has changed and the one thing i'm absolutely convinced about is we cannot have a policy which turns people away so that that is that is crazy so there has to be an answer and it's been squeezed on every level haven't it? even when you're doing away with seated tables you do away with the seat back spaces which have been very useful yeah. and there's there's, yeah. there's fewer and fewer of them so Maybe um, maybe listeners and viewers can let us have their thoughts on this because it has to be solved. We can't be turning people away. But I've been on trains which were dangerously overloaded with yeah. people full and standing um, and with bags stacked everywhere. Yeah. So there you go. But full and standing mentioned segues us on neatly it does. Um, to, to the... Um, the Bowker campaign. Um, this follows on from our last <laughs> section on Lugage, as Peter Sellers might have said. And Richard, you've got an idea for a campaign now, haven't you? I'm not the campaigning type. I know. That's why I'm saying this <laughs> with a smile in my voice. It's... <laughs> well, I'm not. But um, but we've just talked <laughs> about uh, you know luggage and, and um, the number of people on trains, as you said. Um, and the fact is quite a lot of trains are now full and standing. Now, it is um, complicated. I tweeted about it the other day. I got some absolutely extraordinary responses. We I mean, welcome to the Welcome to the world of social media. Some of them were funny. Some of them were daft. Some of them were, you know, a bit unpleasant. Um, and, and there was one particular character who thought I was making yet another point about HS2, which I wasn't at all. You know, I was making a point about um, about the particular train that I was on, which happened to be the 1531 from St Pancras to Chesterfield. Um, but... And I know there's lots of reasons why it happens, right? So if you're out there thinking, I don't understand, I, I genuinely do. Um, we're, we're having short, what we what railway people call short formations and what passengers call flipping irritating, right? Which is when you think it's going to be a two five-car carriage sets and it turns up with one five-car, right? So you've immediately got half the train. That's a short formation. And that's happening because... Um, uh, some of the trains that we did have have gone back to the uh, leasing companies because the Department for Transport wants to cut the costs and, and there aren't new trains to replace it. So big issue with that. Um, what we call off-peak, peak, fair boundaries. So that 1531 from St Pancras to Sheffield was the last off-peak train before the peak started and the pricing went up. So guess what? Everybody piles on. So I, I know that, right? That's That's the thing. Uneven loadings is often an issue on commuter trains where people cram into the first two carriages nearest the ticket barriers, you know, 
and actually the front carriage, if they've walked walk down, down the platform, the platform and you'll yeah, find a, yeah. We'll have more, we'll have fewer people in the carriage. So I get that. And we've got booming passenger numbers for leisure travel, and they tend to be going for the off-peak tickets and they're making the problem worse. So we understand why it's happening, but in a way it's fascinating, but it's happening, right? And all we want to do is just draw attention to the fact that people are returning to the railway in droves. Maybe a slightly different mix to what we've had before, but they're still there, and we've got to do something positive. So this is a positive campaign. This isn't beating people overhead, which is just no. saying, it, you know, and I accept there's a risk it will come across as a bit whiny. It's not meant to be. Full and standing simply means let's have more capacity in however we do it. So that's the point of it. So what we've suggested we do is just anybody who's listening or anybody who's tweeting, just if you see a train with, um, you know, where it is full and standing, you know, picture, take a picture, uh, put, if you can tag us, that'd be great, but certainly use the hashtag full and, that's A-N-D, not the little ampersand thing, so full and standing, uh, and then let us know about it, and we'll build a body of evidence. This is a positive thing to draw attention to a growing issue. And part of the reason it's needed, as you have commented in the past, is we've had people like Grant Shapps saying that because of COVID, the pattern of use of people aren't travelling by train anymore. Well, they are, and mm. in very significant numbers. And, this, you know, we've been talking on the railway for many years about the shoulder peaks, which you were talking about there, where um, the first cheap train before and after the peak um, is, is, is rammed. Well, of course, they're trying to do something about this in Scotland as well, aren't they? By They've abolished peak fares. And it'd be very interesting um, to see what to, that's uh, done. Yeah, we're, very we're interesting. Gonna, we're going to talk about that because that could be a solution. But yeah. like you, you said at the time, there may well be implications on there. You, you get more revenue but lower yield. But maybe the, 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 the reasons why people are using the railway has changed and we've got to accept there's a change to the financial structure of the railway. Yeah. As a result, maybe it's just going to cost us more to carry more people in their bags um, through yeah. the day. And we, we need to sort of learn how to handle that, whether it's through financial support for government or fares or whatever it is but we can't just stick our fingers in our ears and hope the problem of the, these problems are going to go away because yeah. they're not aren't they um it's worth mentioning uh, if you are taking a picture please be considerate to your fellow passengers some people don't like to be photographed out in public although it's perfectly legal for a photographer to do that some people can be a bit sensitive to having the pictures taken so do tread carefully um, I saw your picture was basically the back of a load of people's heads because you were bit, they were all facing the other way. So, oh, and I did. I, do you know what? I waited for the moment. Exactly what your point is really important. Uh, I waited for that moment. You've probably found out a bit about my photography skills as well, actually, which aren't very good. But I waited till people were looking away because um, I just wanted the presence of people rather than their faces. We do have to be sensitive. I completely agree with that. That's right. So, indeed, there you go. Full and standard about a campaign. So it's not just journalists are campaigning for stuff. We've got, <laughs> we've got Richard doing it as well now. So let's do our bit to raise awareness of the fact that passenger numbers are on the rise again for a different purpose it's discretionary some people don't like the use of the word leisure um it's discretionary but it's there and we've got to learn how to yeah. handle it now when we spoke to lord hendy in the last episode number seven peter explained that there is a skills crisis in the industry which we must do something about he explained how railway 200 in 2025 which celebrates the opening of the um the Stockton and Darlington Railway in September 1825, the first public railway in the world to use steam locomotives and thereby ground zero for every railway in the world. Uh, that celebration should be a great career. Well, it must be actually a great vehicle for raising awareness and inspiring people to join an industry where a wonderful career, not merely a job, awaits. Indeed. And if anybody's in any doubt uh, of the scale of this problem, there's, a, there's an organisation called the National Skills um, Academy for Rail, NSAR, um, who, uh, indeed, who uh, published its annual rail workforce uh, survey 2023. Uh, they actually did it at the end of October 2023, but we thought this was really relevant given what, what Peter Handy had said. Absolutely. And there's actually really worrying reading. Um, one third of the rail... Uh, workforce is, 50, is aged 50 or over. Um, there's around 75,000 people uh, 
going to be leaving through retirement or other forms of attrition by 2030. And you might think, well, that's quite a few years off, but that's a big percentage it's a of big the total number. Workforce. That's a big bow wave of retirement, isn't it? And of experience. Uh, and that's a key issue. Um, only 16% of railway uh, people are women, uh, and only 12% are from ethnic and minority backgrounds. So there's some real, real challenges. So we spoke to Neil Robertson, chief executive of um, NSAR, uh, about the report and what needs to be done. Neil is always fascinating and thought-provoking to he listen is. to. He is. Well, welcome, Neil. Um, Neil Robertson, chief executive of the National Skills Academy for Rail. I suppose, for those who don't know, we should start with what the academy is. I mean, who who set it up? When was it set up? What's what's the sort of core purpose behind it? Thank you for having me. Yes, NSA was set up 12 years ago between industry and government as part of a wider government skills initiative that, funny enough, I was actually involved in at the time in the, in the skills department. And it was it was to help the rail industry address its skills priorities as defined by the industry. And the industry then set a number of challenges to NSAR, which it's, I mean, we've, we've had a remarkably consistent business plan over the years. A lot of that's to do with data, bringing some independence to quality assurance, designing and promoting apprenticeships, uh, running something called Roots into Rail that brings young people into the industry, and uh, really responding to individual company challenges as to what they might need. And uh, we're funded mainly through membership. So industry pays us uh, membership fees. And in return, we deliver a set program of work, as agreed with our board, who are the great and the good of the industry. Brilliant. So we're industry owned and we're not for profit. Good stuff. Well, you and I have talked about this lots over the over the years, haven't we, Neil? But um, just looking at those results of that survey, um, like Richard, I was really shocked that 75,000 people are going to be leaving through retirement and other forms of attrition on top of that, that big percentage being 50 and over. That's a very high number. I mean, what's that as a percentage of the entire workforce? And surely th th it's a biggie big problem not just the numbers it's the experience that's going to be walking out the door it's it's a number it's a it's just it's over a quarter of the industry it's the it's the experience we are losing but it's also the fact that it creates a situation there's only so many trainees apprentices new people you can have in a workforce without it feeling like a kind of a youth club or a holiday camp so <laughs> you have to you know you, you a more measured approach is, of course, the right one, but we've arrived in this position because we're very conservative. So what we do is when old people retire, we replace them with some quite old people. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, you just need to look at, and one of the enemies of this is uh, must have 10 years experience in the railway, must have 15 years, or we, pri you know, we value an interview how many years experience have you got in the railway? So that that is one of our enemies. So we, we've we've replaced old with quite old. So we've now reached a, not quite a cliff edge, but certainly a place to be uh, worried about. And thank you, both of you, for raising the issue. And so on that, then, are you suggesting the industry and and. I don't mean, I know nobody will be going out deliberately to be difficult or cause themselves a problem. But do you think the industry, by asking those questions like, oh, you must have 10 years, you must have 15 years experience, kind of potentially its own worst enemy? I mean, what, what, what can we do to, to turn that around? Is that one of your roles? Well, that, we, one of our roles is to challenge that. And the new data has given us renewed vigor in challenging that particular. Mm. Yeah, of course, it's well-meaning. We want people that know what they're doing, right? But competency and experience aren't the same. And we are being we are being excessively cautious. That won't surprise anybody. The happy news is that some of the new technologies and things that we need to do, particularly on the infrastructure side, are more similar than they've ever been to the kind of things that happen in other related industries, e.g., uh, regulated power or water right. or telecoms. Uh, okay, well, that that makes absolute sense, and great that we kind of learn from other other industries. Do you think then 
that there's more that could still uh, be done or could be done. I suppose one of my slight concerns would be that you've got an organization like NSAR, you obviously do, you know, got a clear strategy, doing some great stuff, and there's always a risk. Uh, I'm sure this hasn't happened in the railways, that everybody goes, right, great, anyway, you're doing that. So you're kind of left to sort of play your own furrow. Is, is there more that everybody can do to support what you're doing? Richard, there is, and uh, it's we're we're not we're not in that situation where people, the industry is leaving it to us. Far from it. But we we've upped our game together to to be now recruiting two and a half thousand apprentices per year, right. and that's quite good compared to where we were before. But unfortunately, it's only half as many as we need. So what people will feel like they're doing a good job, but they're not quite doing enough. And then there are parts of industry, particularly the smaller businesses, who find it very hard to do this, to take on people, to train people. And that's because of their size. Maybe they can't deliver the whole apprenticeship. Or crucially, they don't have the forward business confidence. So that, you know, would you take on an apprentice for three years if you can only see a year's worth of work? You don't want somebody's mother down in your yard shouting at you saying, why are you sacking my boy? And, and people, so it's for good reasons that people don't want to, to do that. And one of the new services we've launched is that NSAR will employ the apprentice, if necessary, to, to take away that, that concern, if you like. Okay. That's fantastic. Brand new. Just, it's, it's just been uh, agreed and approved by the Department for Education. So breaking news. And Super. has the industry got it? Are they on side with you and pulling the same way, or are you having to constantly kick it, the backsides to get things moving? A bit of both. I think intellectually we have, and you just need to look at every press re release you see. It t tells you about how many apprentices uh, and how many people were trained. So I think intellectually we've got it. I think the heart is still a bit behind in terms of the, the need for it. And there's a, there is something that people don't understand, and I blame myself for this because it's, it's been something I've been trying to explain, I think, badly. I think people can't understand my accent or something, but <laughs> it's three times cheaper to train than pay wage inflation. And we have the highest wage inflation of any comparable sector, which means that to outsiders, e.g., let's say, the Treasury, we look like a bad bet. Because instead of delivering lots of apprentices, we deliver some apprentices and lots of wage inflation. And it makes them minded to take money away from investment projects, let's say. Right. So um, all the shenanigans over HS2 will have been really bad news for you then. Well, it, 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 I mean, I think what we've just talked about partly explains the shenanigans over HS2. More than half of HS2's inflation has come from people costs. I mean, that is sure. that is an amazing statistic of itself, isn't it? And so, I mean, this is absolutely about medium to long term planning. And if you don't get your people pipeline sorted, then you end up, you know, sort of reaping the reward, the negative rewards that we have done. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, and what we've learned to do is we've learned, you know, we actually now know what to do. And as I said, we're doing some of it. We just haven't done enough. So mm. it's like, right, we can do this now. Let's go a bit faster and a bit more ambitious. I, I should say something about HS2. They've done a fantastic job of implementing all of the best practice in relation to procuring for apprenticeships. So they they mandate their supply chain to train, they police it properly, they support it properly. They've done a great job. They couldn't have done much more actually based on the parameters we knew at the time. Now, if we were writing the parameters again, we'd say do double. And they would know how to do that as well. But at the time, it felt cutting edge. So I want to give them credit for what they have done in that space. And in fact, Nigel's heard me banging on about this, but we, we strangely, we left the EU and we lost 10% of our workforce, particularly south of Derby. Now, guess what we've done? We've recreated that workforce. We've yeah. built a new workforce. It's a fantastic job. And what are we going to do with them? They'll probably go away and build some water projects or something like that, or some energy projects, because we've we've not got enough in the south of the country for them to do. And they could have naturally moved forward. So that's my frustration about HS2, is that we've done the hard yards, we've built the workforce, they could move forward at a much lower unit cost than, than we've been seeing now. 
So presumably things like a rolling program of electrification would be good news for you because it would keep the requirement for employment and training and everything else. That's exactly what we need. That's what the Germans do and get very low unit costs. Whisper it, Scotland even are doing this and getting the uh, similar unit costs. And we don't, all, we don't normally say that they're doing a great job up there, but on that particular thing, they are. And they've, they've, they're showing us the way. Yeah, that's fantastic. So how, how optimistic do you feel then that this can get turned around? And do you think this is, are we, are we on to, are we on to a good trajectory now? Or does it, is it, does it also feel like sometimes, you know, two steps forward, I don't know how many back, but certainly a few back. Oh, no, Richard, um, uh, it is two forward, one back. Okay. Definitely. And I do have, I do have days where I think, oh, no. <laughs> really? But, you know, there's so many good people around me and encourage me. Uh, Andy Joy of Story Contracting, for example, <laughs> encourages me every time I see him. So I, I, we keep going, and my team do as well, more importantly. So we're, we're, we are optimistic, but we know it's hard work, particularly working with the smaller businesses. That's really hard work because you've got to find them, and then you've got to get them in one place to talk to you, and then you've got to explain something that they've never seen before. So all of that, and, you know, the rail industry is not good with new things. So are we on the right trajectory? No, but have we learnt how to get onto the right trajectory? Yes. Fantastic. So if 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 we if the industry is doing a three year apprenticeship to build a new you know to build a new workforce, we're probably at the end of year one. So it's generally not a bad story. Are you getting what you need from the government? <laughs> we'll, uh, take that, we'll take that as a no then. The, the government have, the, the current government have maintained their, this isn't just a tactful answer, right? This is a genuine answer because I'm feeling, I'm feeling like uh, being, being quite candid with you. They've, they've stuck to their commitments to apprenticeships, well done. They've, they've brought some flexibilities into the apprenticeships, well done. They've, they've committed to this idea of levelling up, although they don't really know what it is, but they've sort of, they've stuck at it and it's been a consistent policy and we see it now in social value measurements. So without, without their commitment, Lieber Mouth and Northumberland Line would not be happening. And actually HS2 wouldn't have happened without this commitment to levelling up as measured through social value. So that's been good. They, you know, they took us out of the EU. That was bad from a workforce point of view. Leave aside the politics, just from a workforce, that set us back. Uh, they've cancelled HS2. Instead of cancelling, they should have slowed it down. Daft buggers, they should have just slowed it down. Stupid. Anyway, and, and nobody believes what they've come up with instead. So that's not been good. And then we, we uh, on the rolling stock side, which is a side that we get a wee bit less involved with, but have been recently, you know, again, the government's planning of its pipeline is, is rather poor. And the National Infrastructure Commission was set up to help the government do a rolling programme of things. Instead, the government is, is like that. So guess what? The industry is like that. And guess what? That filters down. And we, John, who's trying to run a, a tier three yard somewhere making things or supplying something, he's got 11 months forward business confidence. And an apprenticeship pays back in three years, probably, kind of one. So why would you? You know, so we're asking people to we're asking people to trust us, to give us goodwill, to, to go with their heart, not their head. And, you know, and by and large, they will. And the new services are designed to make it a bit less of a please do this. Because we should be, there's a business case for it that, that, that we don't get over. So that was a long answer, Nigel. A mixed scorecard. It was a, it was it was a good answer, Neil, which had the extra benefit of being candid and true, which we like at Green Signals. <laughs> Superb. Well, I know well, you both like to like that sort of thing. Absolutely, Neil. Thank you so much for your for joining us. I'm sure we could I'm sure we could talk for hours, and we will come back again. But really appreciate you uh, joining us for this. My pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me. Great. You're very Cheers. welcome, Neil. We'll have you back at some point. I'm sure. Have a good day. Thank you. Well, thanks to Neil Robertson, who's always a great talker and uh, good to hear his very candid views about um, training and recruitment and the, and the skills shortage. We'll be talking to Neil again. There's no doubt about that. 
And that's all we got time for this week after a busy programme of a magazine-style bits and pieces. Um, thanks ever so much for listening, as per usual. Um, don't forget to like and subscribe and pass comments on uh, the various platforms, whether you're on a, a podcast or YouTube. And if you've got any questions, do let them have them. If you've got questions for our Christmas show, try and send them to us by email through the, the website to the info at address, and that way we won't miss them. Um, next week, we are hoping to venture north of the border uh, to look at some of the things that Neil mentioned there, Leavenmouth and electrification. And I can tell you, it's going to be a fantastic trip. So do join us for that. Um, have a great week. But for now, from Richard and me, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>